Hello and welcome to the show that teaches you the things your parents and teachers are too afraid to. The Helios Blog. Today, Piers Morgan and Jordan Peterson. Time for another debate. The reason she's alone is because she's difficult. Women are not accepting the bare minimum. Women fuck men they respect. All the women who say things like, I'm strong, independent, I don't need no man, like, y'all impress me. Women just gaslight each other and say what they want to hear. What you've gleaned about it, read about it, heard about it, it mentions the word patriarchy, I think, a dozen times or something. Oh, yeah, um, patriarchy. Th- there's no doubt the whole theme of the thing is that, you know, you don't really need men anymore. This is a reference to the Barbie movie. More women, you can have everything you want without these ghastly people, and we need to completely dismantle the whole patriarchy and have a have a matriarchy, right, where women run everything and particularly oh, yeah, run... They had a- we already have that. Run beastly men. I mean, th- this this war on the patriarchy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say the online world in many ways is a matriarchy. And the reason I would say that is because the online world enables female form antisocial behavior. Indeed. And females who are antisocial use reputation savaging, bullying and exclusion to gain their narcissistic pathway forward. There's a very well documented psychiatric literature on female antisocial behavior. And the online world has many of the elements of a matriarchy. And so, yeah, well, there's the matriarchy for you. And I mean, I'm not saying it would be worse or better than the patriarchy, although I, you know, the patriarchy is it's a foolish concept to begin with because it's such a radical oversimplification. But um, the idea that if we just replaced a hierarchy of men with a hierarchy of women or no hierarchy at all, I mean, if you think that, you're so foolish that you should be put in university and educate. Indeed, except university nowadays doesn't educate anymore. It's, it's a training camp for womanist, wokist religion. Effectively, going to university for a lot of programs is just what? Going to church. Educated by people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> of course, we can't do that at the universities anymore either. So, It was extraordinary on universities that Harvard University, I think, has just been voted the worst in the world. For free speech, it almost like it doesn't exist at Harvard. Worse in America, I think it was. I mean, how how can it be that Harvard has become this barometer of the enemy of free speech? Because you infiltrate the institutions from the top down. That's why. So you go to the place where people are supposed to be educated, and you corrupt it, and down and down and down it goes. Right. Well, it took a lot of work to manage that. It took decades of, of, of something approximating foolish conspiratorial uh, maneuvering to manage that. I mean, you got to ask yourself, is Harvard a university or a hedge fund? I mean, as a massive endowment, it, it seems to me very often that the university is just a sideshow for, for the people who govern the Harvard, Harvard's economic affairs. But, but that aside, it's taken a very long time to let the woke mob and the, and the progressive propagandists take over the university systems and Harvard's in the forefront. And so they managed it a little earlier and a little better. And I say that, by the way, with absolutely no um, satisfaction. I worked at Harvard in the 90s. I was a professor. Now imagine, it's, it's exactly like I said, imagine living in this time period and having even been in your prime in the golden age and as you get older, seeing your whole civilization crumble around you. That's literally what's happening. That's literally what's happening. 
disaster. Professor there from 92 to 97, and I loved it. And it was one high-functioning institute at that time, man. Um, it really, really valued excellence, and it just didn't talk about that. It actually did it, and I loved being there. The students were great. The professors were great. I really liked my colleagues. It was an admirable place, and I still have colleagues there, and they've told me straight out that it's, they don't... That it's a disaster. ...get to say what they think. Mm. The bureaucracy has taken over the institution, the inmate... Kind of, kind of like what happened with uh, Jordan himself, right? When he talked about... Uh... The, the guy, the, the leader of his country, and bam, suddenly, oh, we need to take away your psychology license. Because these two things are related, you know, utterly ridiculous hogwash. It's run the asylum. The professors are terrified, too. I've, I've had professors from the Kennedy School tell me this, too, that they, they can't say what they think anymore. And so when you let the second raiders and the pretenders in and, and you let them whine about victimization and oppression and you let them usurp the the appropriate function of the university, you get exactly what you deserve. And yeah, which is a fail, a failed institution. And arguably, that's what has happened in the West at the highest levels, right? Of bureaucracy. It's just rotted. <sighs> I believe there's actually um, a term for this. Corruption. It is, it's literally called corruption. Which, if you're wondering, what, what is the other term, right? What, what is the other meaning? Well, corruption is used to describe a disease that, that's progressive and is destroying the thing from the inside, right? It's like, you know, you imagine a cabbage and it's rotting from the inside. You could call that a corruption of the cabbage, right? That's literally what is happening to the West. Corruption. And I don't mean, you know, bribery a la Escobar like it used to be. No, no. This is, uh, you know, follow our religion, you heathen. And if you don't follow it, we'll destroy you. It's literally the Spanish Inquisition, 1984. And that's exactly what happened at Harvard. And it's still happening. It's not improving. I can't really see how it will. I think that to flip the universities, you'd have to do to them what Musk did to Twitter, which is to fire 90% of the people who work there. Yeah. And that's just not going to happen. So, you know, I think you the Wait for them to die. The culture shifts and the next generation takes over and they're not woke and idiots. Or not. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. It's ridiculous. I started a new university with my daughter. So right, I'm going to come to that. Redress it that way. When Michaela yeah. joins us, I'm going to, we're going to talk about that university. I, I, I want to just, I mean, on the university, I, I remember one recent case. It was a professor who for 25 years had given a lecture in the use of offensive language. And as part of the lecture, he used offensive language. And he got... How dare you? ...cancelled for using offensive language. <laughs> You literally can't make this crap up. Like, it's so idiotic. It It's almost like, have you guys heard of The Onion? You know, it's it's like, um, it's like a joke newspaper that makes joke headlines, right? And they're, they're like, you know, they're all satirical, right? But this is like not The Onion. You know, it's like so stupid as to make one think that it's satirical, but it's actually not satirical. It's ridiculous. Language. And at that point, I realized that parody was dead. Right? Everything was dead. I mean, in that moment, you couldn't parody the, that. I mean, if you can't have satire and comedy, what do you have? You have zero free speech at that point. 
a professor teaching how to use offensive language, using examples of offensive language, then is deemed to have offended students so much that he has to get cancelled and lose his job. I mean, completely insane. For 25 years. Yeah, well, welcome to the land ruled by the evil clown. You know that, that he has ascendant, so to speak, when, as you pointed out, you can't parody it. It's gone to the point where it's its own parody. Yeah. Who rules you? The person that you can't criticize. And I see that happening all over. And, and part of the way you deal with that, and I mean this most seriously, is you deal with that with a, with a positive sense of humor. And I can do that when I'm not ill and I'm mm. feeling much better even than I did last year when we were talking. And mm. so I can handle it with a bit of a sense of humor now. And you need to do that. Um, if you lose your sense of humor, in some ways you've been defeated if you lose your sense I, of I humor. I completely agree. And uh, if, if we don't continue to laugh, then these joyless, soulless, woke wastrels win because they are, exactly. are joyless. They don't laugh at anything. They, they are offended by absolutely No, and they don't like everything. comedians. Yeah, they, they find comedy yeah. offensive. Well, the moment people find comedy mm-hmm. offensive, I find them so offensive, I want nothing to do with them. Yeah, because you're an idiot. Because you don't understand even the principle behind what it is you're criticizing. Mm-hmm. You, are, you can tell the tyrants they hate two things. They hate comedians mm. and they hate cars. <laughs> That's funny. That's so true. It's so true. Want, yeah, you got to tax the cars. I'll talk to you about your, your new... Ta- tax the carbon. Book, We Who Wrestle With God. Yep. A lot of your fans, there's yep. all sorts of Jordan Peterson groups that you can join who debate whether you really believe in God or not. So let's just get it on the table. Do you believe in God? Hmm. Here we go. Okay, let's, let's skip this crap just afraid of different things than the people who lie. And I'm afraid, for example, of what happens when you lose control of your tongue. And I said that back in 2016, when I first opposed the Canadian government. And people were, you know, congratulating me. It's like, well, you're so brave to stand up to the government. It's like, I'm nowhere near as afraid of the government as I am of what happens when people lose control of their tongue. I studied totalitarianism for Well, since I was 13 years old, in depth, and I know what happens when people lose control of their tongue. Mm. What happens is everything goes to hell. And I don't mean, I mean that metaphysically. I mean, I might even mean it theologically, but you can just say, don't even bother with that. But what's fascinating... Let's just mean it practically. But what's interesting is, I completely agree with you, by the way, Um, and you are the most open book of almost anyone I've ever interviewed, right to the point I asked you if you believe in God. I didn't actually know what you were going to say, but for some reason you're reluctant to say. Why are you reluctant? Well, okay, let's let let's walk along. That. Well, because it's a it's not a it's not a well posed question. It's too complicated an issue to be dealt with like that. You step into instant traps just by accepting the question. So I'll, I'll show you what I mean. So the first thing I would say is, what do you mean by believe? Like, do you think that a statement about the existence of God is something like a scientific theory? Do you think it's a list of facts? Is it a factual question? Does God exist or not? Is it a factual question like you're asking about whether a cup on a table exists or a plate on a table, an artifact in a room? What do you mean by this? What do you mean by believe? I'll stake my life on the proposition that God exists. How's that? Well, is that an I- answer? 
Because that's the right answer. I would ask you, here's my supplementary. Do you ever pray? Always. Who do you pray to? The spirit that protects you from hell. But that, many people would say, is God. Hey, sounds good to me. And so you might say, well, I said I pray always. So what does that mean? I'm trying to say the most, the clearest words I can say. And I do that by paying attention. I'm listening to the words and feeling them as I move along, thinking, is that a firm foundation in the morass? Is that a, is that a bridge over the abyss? Is that word the right word? I do that when I'm writing. I do that when I'm talking. And I do that because I don't want to be in the abyss. And the pathway over the abyss is the truth. Now, with regards to belief in God, you might say, and I know, I know that, that you're not particularly religiously inclined. At least that's the theory. It's like, well, you have a character, Pierce. Everyone has a character. You could say that would be the spirit of Pierce Morgan. And then we might say, well, let's inquire into that spirit. If you were a hedonist, then the spirit that would be Pierce Morgan would be your hedonistic whims. And that would be your God. I would say if you're a noble person, then your spirit is something elevated above your mere whims. And then there's the spirit that's inculcated within you. It's a consequence, perhaps, of your socialization. But in a more sophisticated way, it's actually a consequence of the spirit that you've allowed as a consequence of your choices to dwell within you. And that spirit has a nature. It might be allied with the truth. It might be allied with falsehood. If it's allied with the truth, it's a manifestation of what has been considered traditionally the logos. The more you're aligned with the truth, the more your spirit is an avatar of the logos. And that's just, it's true. It's religiously true, as it turns out, but it's also technically true. It's technically true. See, I had a debate. And so I'm going. To, I'm making that case in the new book. Right. So I had a debate with Richard Dawkins about this, uh, who was a bit disingenuous for me because he sat with me for a whole show, seemed to enjoy it, thanked me very much for it, and then called me a fool afterwards in some podcast. So disaster. I, I know you've had a few Ooh. run-ins with him, and it, and I, it doesn't surprise me. But uh, what I said to Dawkins was because I was raised a Catholic, I was given spiritual guidance for several years by Catholic nuns. Uh, and I do believe in God. And the reason I said to him is that no human brain can really explain to me or anybody what was there before before nothing. So if you believe in a big bang theory, well, what was there before that? Yeah, it's a very, very complicated question. And actually, you know, listening to some physics lectures and all that, I, I've heard some theories on it. And it's it's not so, like, hard to justify a creator, really. Because I don't think any human brain has that power to, un- to explain or answer that question. To me, it makes perfect sense. There should be some being, entity, something, which is superior to a human brain. And, I believe that. And I'm, I would think that someone with your brain would think that too, because there are questions we simply well, can't answer. Okay. Okay, three things about that. So the first is, that's the argument by design, that things are so complex and sophisticated that that cries out for the hypothesis for of something like a creator. I'm not a big fan of the argument by design. I can see its advantages, but it isn't the primary argument as far as I'm concerned. So, 
the the Big Bang proponents have a problem because it's a tenet of the Big Bang theory that the laws of physics themselves break down at the point of the singularity. And that would be the point just before the Big Bang. And when you say the laws of physics, the existence of space and time even is an unknowable prior to the Big Bang, you're basically positing a miracle at the beginning of existence. And so if you get to have your miracle, there's no reason the religious types can't have theirs. Well, exactly. You might argue about what the miracle needs to be. And I think that's an argument that has to be had. I don't like the argument by design. I like the argument by conscience better. Mm. So the argument by conscience, which is another string of classic theological thought, is that something dwells within you that aligns you with the spirit of reality. And it's the still small voice within that was identified first by the prophet Elijah. And it was part of a transformation in the religious viewpoint in historical terms that moved the notion of God from something like Baal, B-A-L-B-A-B-A-A-L, a nature God, the God of storms and earthquakes, of, of, of what would you say, remarkable and awe-inspiring natural phenomena, to the voice within that can, if you attend to it, align you with the structure of reality itself, that internal voice being a manifestation of God. And I think that's an extremely powerful argument. And I think it's right. And I'll tell you something about Dawkins' work that's very interesting. Mm. So Dawkins has pointed out that an organism has to be a microcosm of its environment in order to survive. And I would say the the voice of conscience within us is the most unerring manifestation of the microcosm within. And I think you can make an extraordinarily powerful biological case for that. And I've done that in this new book. So I think Dawkins' argument... I think Dawkins' argument invalidates his his epistemology. Yeah, I agree. I really believe that. But what do you think? I mean, you, you've had moments in your life in recent years where I would imagine you have faced the prospect of potentially dying. And in those moments, yeah. in those moments, what have you felt? And what do you think happens to you? If you do die, or you had died, what, what did you imagine might happen to you? Vitalista 60 use and recommendation come only in the purview of a diagnosed case of EDED or erectile dysfunction diagnosis, and thereafter, the recommendation of Vitalista 60 pills is only under the authority of a doctor. Vitalista 60 mg as such has a single medicinal compound as its compositional element, which is Tadalafil. This generic element works out a way for the males to get an erection through the increasing blood flow process, which takes place under the effects of vasodilation. Well, at the, I had lots of moments, moments, years in the last few years where dying would have been an absolute relief. And had that been accompanied by the complete cessation of my being, I would have been perfectly content with that. There are things that are far worse than dying. Precisely. So if you're only terrified of dying, you've hardly begun to plumb the depths of existential catastrophe. <laughs> de- death, death is fairly... You just don't have an imagination. What could be worse than dying? A lot of things. Being a prison guard at Auschwitz? But you'd still be alive, even if you were witnessing horror. It's not death that the oh, ultimate... Oh, no. I'm thinking perpetrating it. Right. You mean carrying- how about a, how about being an Auschwitz guard? At a, how about being an Auschwitz guard who really enjoyed his job? Mm. How about that? That's worse than death. 
far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean that. No, no, I, I see that. That's hell, man. Yeah, it's a living hell. That's hell. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. You are the, the demon, effectively, at that point. Mm. But do you think there so, is? But do you so, think there's an actual hell, Jordan? Is there is there somewhere that people like that go to, which is hell? Oh, definitely. Now, what what relationship that has to what happens to you when you die? I have no idea. I mean, I don't think anybody's in a position to speak about what's truly beyond our ken. Let's say I don't think we understand consciousness at all. We don't understand time. We don't understand the relationship between finitude and, in, and, and, and the infinite landscape that surrounds us. That's all a great mystery. And I tend to leave that alone because I try not to speak about things that I can't speak about. But does hell exist? It's like study history and see if you can figure it out for yourself. Yeah, it takes very little studying to know that it exists. Uh, think of the Mongol Empire, for example. And uh, it's not hard to see. I mean, does, does heaven there's exist? There's nothing. There's nothing that's more obvious than that hell exists. So does, I mean, does heaven exist? Mao's China was hell. Right. But does, so you're talking about hell on earth, but do you believe there's a hell after death? Like I said, I, I, I can't, I can't, I don't speculate about such things. I don't, that's where my ignorance finds its. What would you say? That's where my knowledge finds its limit. Mm. I'm, I'm concerned enough about what I'm doing right now, right here, and, and leaving the rest of that. And, you know, I'm, so I have to leave it at that. The hell that I see as a potential on earth is sufficient as a deterrent. And it's of, of sufficient reality. You know, you can ask, well, is it eternal? Well, I would say, well, look, all totalitarian states are variants on a theme let's say, and that theme persists. All archetypal stories are eternal. Everything that happened in the Bible happened and is happening and will continue to happen forever. It's part of the eternal human story. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's, that's what I'm referring to when I'm referring to the wheel of time, you know, the, the history repeating itself thing. It's hyper real. And, and heaven and hell are part of that. Mm. What that means in the final analysis, I don't know. I mean, you asked, I think you asked in there, you know, hell is real, is heaven real? It's like, mm. well, heaven is as far away from hell as you can get. Mm. That's a good way of thinking about right. it. Um, I've spent my whole life trying to determine how you get as far away from being a camp guard at Auschwitz who enjoys his job as possible. And one of the things... One of the things I've realized in recent years, for example, is that you are far from that if you're engaging in your interactions with the world in the spirit of voluntary play. You know, and we're playing during this conversation and Joe Rogan plays on his podcast all the time. And if you're in a playful state with your wife, your marriage is optimized and the state of play is the opposite of tyranny. And that's why it says in the Gospels that If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a little child. So you want to reinstate that that open-eyed, wide-eyed acceptance of life that is the precursor to voluntary play. You want to develop your character to the point where that's part and parcel of your life on an ongoing basis. And that's allowing that spirit of the logos to inhabit you. That's another way of thinking about it. And you you can certainly aid that with prayer. 
you know, people don't understand. People think of God as the joke is a cosmic butler. You pray to have your wishes granted. It's like, he's not a genie. You want to pr- you want to pray? It's like pray about your stupidity. Here's a pr- indeed <laughs> prayer that'll work for sure. You want to see if prayer works? Here's one. This will work. Sit on the edge of your bed. Ask yourself, what bloody stupid thing do I continue to do that's making my life more miserable than it has to be and everyone else's life around me that I could give up, that I would give up? And But you have to really want the answer. So you open yourself up in humility to a revelation. Mm. You'll get an answer. It won't be one you want. That's how you'll know it's true. <laughs> but if you act on it, then your life will improve. And that's a proper prayer. Yeah. That's, that's what you do. Like in a metaphysical sense, the Christian insistence that you should be aware of your sins, you know, which is in, sense, in a sense an existential burden, is also the idea that you should attend to your own inadequacies and admit to them because in doing so, you open up the possibility that something better can make itself manifest within you. And there's no doubt that that's the case. That's for sure that's true. But you have to do it in humility. And you have to be looking. That's why you're supposed to take the moat out of your own eye instead of worrying about the beam in your neighbor's eye. It's like, <laughs> yeah. So sorry, guys. I I'm not commenting because I'm mesmerized by the by the conversation. I'm just uh, I'm learning along with you here. Um, yeah. He has very interesting talking points. That's all I can really say. There's something about you that's stupid you could fix, yeah. and God will tell you what it is if you want him to, so to speak. <laughs> I want to end uh, or your this, wife. I want to end this part of the of the interview just with you, John, before we bring your daughter in. Um, my team were curious whether you would be able, actually physically able, to answer questions with just one word answers, because you think about things on such a high intellectual plane. You're very articulate. You're very thoughtful about them. So I just want to throw a few questions at you and just see whether you can. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying, can you? Some are straightforward, some are a little bit more complex. But what's one piece of music? Very funny. We should all listen to. <laughs> I like that he has to think about how to say just one word. Hank Williams. Which, which song? Any of them? Which song? Lovesick Blues. Well, the supplementary is why? Plaintive Truth. <laughs> he answered in two words. All right. Let's uh, end the video there. Hit the like, hit the sub, hit all for notifications, drop me a donation. Like Hunter M, Adrian Altom, and Bobby did in Renaissance Press, and Brian shout to you, most recent Patreon subscriber. Thank you. Go buy my books at bit.ly slash heliosbooks. My Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash theheadiestblog. If you'd like coaching, message me at theheadiestblog at gmail.com. That's my email. I'll slot you right in. Thank you so much for listening, guys, especially if you listen to the end. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time.